Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, March 17th, we are studying Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. As Jesus continues his journey to Jerusalem, he is met by ten lepers who cry out to him for mercy. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Chris Hull. Pastor Hull serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Pastor Hull, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Brother Apple, thank you for having me. It's always fun times walking through the Word with you. We're in Luke 17 this morning, Brother Hull. What do we need to know about context that will help us into this text? I mean, you have the beginning of, of chapter 17, is this temptations to sin, increase in faith. And that's what you really have. And, and a couple verses earlier, you have like the rich man and Lazarus. So you have Jesus setting up. Well, he's not really setting up here. You see this throughout Luke, is this separation between poor and the rich, faith, unbelief, this great reversal. You have the unworthy servants right before this text, the coming of the kingdom afterwards. And you, you see this narrative of what really matters is faith in Christ, and that's what he's setting up here as he keeps preaching. Talk more about that theme of the, the great reversal. We have seen that throughout the gospel according to St. <clears throat> Luke. How, how does that play into Luke? How is that going to play into this text today? Well, you see, like, the great reversal, the probably the most prominent is with Mary, right? You have the Magnificat. You, you see she is the lowly handmaiden of the Lord, is the one lifted up. They, he has sent the rich away empty. You see this vocabulary going throughout it. Elizabeth, who is barren and lowly, is the one who bears a child in her older age. You have texts like the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. You have, um, which actually comes after this text, right? Luke 18. You have the rich man and Lazarus. You have here the 10 lepers or leprous men, however you want to phrase Well, not however you want to phrase it. I make the argument there is a specific reason why to phrase it a certain way. But you see this reversal is Christ becomes the lowly one that he may exalt us. So you see that throughout this text too. He who is exalted will be humbled. He who is humbled will be exalted. Hmm. And who does Luke write this to is that Theophilus. So he's writing in this context to this 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 man saying it's all different how you understand the world how you understand being a christian it's not a worldly pomp it's not a worldly strength but it's the opposite of that like saint paul says god's power is made perfect in weakness what i find striking about the the theme of reversal <laughs> and how we see it in this text from luke 17 is that it you really do see how in this text, the lowly one is the one who has faith in Christ. And while that there are often outward circumstances that are tied to that, you know, you mentioned Mary is a poor young handmaiden and Elizabeth is a barren one. Today we're going to encounter lepers and then even a Samaritan, all of whom are the lowly in, in society. 
what really makes the one stand out isn't just the fact that he was a leper or that he was a Samaritan, but it is his faith in Christ. And we see how that, you know, I mean, it's more than just the outward circumstances. So, I mean, to go back to like, blessed are you who are poor, as Jesus says in, in Luke, or blessed are you who are hungry now. It's not just sort of a mechanical, how much money do you have in your bank account and are you below the threshold or not? But it has to do with the poverty of spirit and trusting in Christ alone, hungering for his good gifts. And and to see how, you know, today we have the lowest of the low, but what will exalt him is the fact that he has this faith in Christ. And it's a really important thing to see in this text today. Exactly. Exactly. And and that's what then comforts us as well. <laughs> Look at this one who is the one blessed by Christ. And so are you, not because of what you bring to the table, but what Christ has brought there for you. All right, let's take a look then. This is Luke 17, verses 11 to 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. That is our text for today. That's Luke 17, verses 11 to 19. Pastor Hull, the text begins with a travel notice. We've been talking a little bit about this since the end of chapter 9. Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem over and Mm -hmm. over again. We find out he's traveling. What's the significance of this journey that Jesus is on? How does it influence this text today? Well, it's a pilgrimage, right? And, And that's a great theme throughout Luke is pilgrimage. Jesus journeying. You see the Son of God is journeys to the womb of St. Mary. And then you see this pilgrimage through his life, and now his face set toward Jerusalem, and everything he does is in that context. It's all journeying to the cross. Everything he does flows from that vocation of being the crucified one. So everything is in the context of that pariuthentes, the participle way of saying that, you know, that, that journeying, that pilgrimaging on to Jerusalem to get peace wholeness, completion for all fallen man. And that's what you see Jesus doing here. And and that's what he does. He restores these men. He restores the the 10 here in this passage to who they are created to be. He, and that's what the cross is. It takes away that which has corrupted that we may be what God has created us to be. Talk, talk a little bit more about that, why it's—because on the one hand, you know, you've got Jesus cleansing these these leprous men, and that's a really awesome thing, and what a wonderful gift, no doubt, to be cleansed from leprosy. But, but why is it necessary to see this healing, and I think we would say all of the healings, in the context of Jesus on the way to the cross? How does that help us to understand Jesus' healings in the, in the fuller sense of, of what he's up to? Well, and what is he doing on the cross? We go back to John, John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the sin bearer. He takes all of the sin on himself, and he goes to the cross and dies. That's why he came. He came to die in the stead of every man, woman, and child 
that they may be forgiven their corruption, forgiven their sin. And it's interesting when you and I say this, he came to die. You, you didn't stop me there and say, no, 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 wait a minute. That's not why he came. Hmm. Like, but if you read <laughs> certain theologians, not in our church, but well, a couple in our church body, um, the Missouri Synod, but mainly in the ELCA, you see that Jesus's death was not the purpose, but was an accident. He did not come to die. He came to heal people. He came to preach to people. He came to love people. But man is so corrupted, he rejected that and put Jesus to death. Well, no. <laughs> Jesus himself says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. He himself says, I came to do this. I came to, well, look at what he says in um, Matthew 16 or, or Luke um, 18. You see him say, Everything written in the prophets will be fulfilled concerning the Son of Man. He will be spit upon and, and ridiculed, and they'll scourge him, and then they'll kill him, and he will rise up on the third day. So, yes, he did come to die. That is his purpose, is to go to the cross that all sinners may be atoned for in his blood, wounds, and death. And then everything he does leading up to there and now flowing from it relates to that. Yeah, I mean, it's even stronger language than the will happen. It's must language when he speaks about his passion. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that. It was in Luke 9 where he, he predicts it for the very right. first time. And it's it's very strong. You know, this must happen. The Son of Man must be killed. That's that. It's not right. just going to, but must happen, and that's how he explains it to his disciples after he's raised from the dead. That didn't you know? Didn't you know these things had to happen? It's a, a necessity that it has to happen this way. So what? Like if if all Jesus did is come to heal and not to die, then like what? What's missing? What What do you miss from the healings if it's not connected to the cross? One of the big things is is. What has God created us to be? He has created us to be eternal beings, to be with him forever. The only thing preventing that is sin. Sin prevents that eternal life with God. Sin is not just, and when Jesus heals, he's doing more than just giving someone their sight, giving someone the ability to hear, or, or giving someone the ability to speak, or even hear, cleansing someone of their leprosy. What he's doing is he's taking away that which has corrupted man that man may be perfect in God. It's in the context of what he does on the cross that he now heals you. What's the cross is taking away the sin that you may be perfect in him, that it does not condemn you anymore. You are now whole in Christ. So when he heals, it is that moment where he's saying, this is the purpose of why I've come. This is showing you, this is pointing you to the cross, what I'm going to be doing there. So everything he does in the healings is preaching the purpose of the cross. It's not done in and of itself because then he would just stay on earth the whole time and just heal, heal, heal. Just do that all the time. But he doesn't. He does it for three years and then dies and then rises. Because every healing is for the purpose of showing you what he's going to ultimately do on the cross, which is heal you eternally from that which corrupts you. So that you may live forever with his father. Yeah, I mean, if if you don't have the cross and the resurrection that goes with it, then all you have is that earthly healing, which is nice, and it's a, certainly a good gift of God. But if that's all you have, then you don't have 
everything that Jesus came to give you. I mean, this reminds me of when John sends his two messengers to Jesus. John is in prison there with Herod, and he asks Jesus through those messengers, are you the one to come or should we look for another? And Jesus gives that answer. He says yes, and he tells him yes by saying, look at the signs, look at what I'm doing. And he talks about the blind receiving their sight and the deaf being made to hear, the lame being made to walk. He even talks about the dead being raised up. But the very last thing that he lists, which almost sounds anticlimactic at first, is that the mm. poor have good news preached to them. You know, when you think about all right. these amazing things that Jesus is doing, here's one of them in Luke 17, lepers are being cleansed. But apart from the good news being preached, all of those healings aren't brought to their completion in Christ, in the in his removal of the corruption and his giving of eternal life that happens through that death and resurrection. Well, exactly. And that's... When, when you hear this text preached, any pastor worth his salt includes that journey language. Jesus is doing this miracle, performing it on his way to the cross. It's not just some abstract event in the life of Christ. Everything is toward the cross. And that, that has to be emphasized because as Jesus is on this pilgrimage, it then defines what our life is as well. What do we sing in our hymn, um, Lord of Our Life, I think it is, that death speeds my life's endeavor to be with Christ forever. Mm. This understanding of our life, everything is defined by that. But how often do you lose that context? How often are you corrupted by everything else in this world? Mm. Um, yesterday, uh, we had a youth event. We watched the Book of Eli. I hate to ask this, but have you seen this movie? I, I, Brother have, Apple? I have seen that one. It's been a while, but I, I have yeah. seen it. Yeah. And it's a neat, and anyone who hasn't, I think it came out in like 2009. So, you know, <laughs> it's like if I told someone the Titanic saying, why'd you ruin it for me? Well, you know, you had time. You had time to read about it. Uh, but, you know, Spoiler you have this. this <laughs> okay. Denzel Washington plays the main character, right? And he keeps saying, stay on the path, stay on the path, stay on this. This is your purpose. This is why you're here. This is what you're doing. You know, how many of our Missouri Center churches will read the purpose-driven life when it's like, you don't have to read this. You've been given your purpose, given your meaning in Christ. Mm. And your meaning, your purpose is journeying within your vocation on a great pilgrimage unto the realm immortal. Mm. And on that path, you then get healed by Christ, forgiven your sins, the corruption removed in holy absolution. And that, that's what your purpose is. That's why you're here. That's the journey you're on. You're being prepared to live forever with the infinite God. And that, that's something. And when you look at something like the book of Eli, Eli, like I mentioned, what does he have? What's not corrupting is all this other stuff. He's focused on just the word, the word that alone sustains the soul on this short little journey unto life forever. So Jesus, again, is on this journey. He's on his way to Jerusalem. So we're going to see this text in light of what Jesus is going to accomplish in Jerusalem by his death, his resurrection. Luke also notes that Jesus is passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Tell us, do a little bit of geography for us here, Pastor Hull. What's the <laughs> significance of, of being between Samaria and Galilee? Well, I mean, it's, it's not, you're not down in Jerusalem. You know, you're not right there. You're a little north of there, if I recall, north. <laughs> and 
you you have this big separation between the Jews and the Samaritans. So this is an area where Jesus is traveling, where you're not just going to have a bunch of Jewish people. You're going to have these Samaritans around, and they they don't like each other. They despise each other. They reject each other's belief and their worldview. And but they both kind of claim the same thing. The Samaritans claim to be the real ones worshiping Yahweh, and so do the Jews. And what's Jesus doing when he walks amongst them? He's saying, no, both of you are are wrong. I am the one that is to be followed. So it's interesting when Jesus goes up to Samaria, he doesn't deny them or ignore them. He focuses them and brings them to himself. So Jesus, again, traveling on the way to Jerusalem, he's between Samaria and Galilee. He goes into a village, and here come 10 lepers. Now, you, you mentioned this earlier, Pastor Hall. Most English translations are going to say 10 lepers. You suggested that the Greek says leprous men, and that that's actually significant. So tell me a little bit more about that. So the Greek, and of course, I'm a good Georgia boy, so my pronunciation is terrible, is the, the leproi andres. Leproi Andres, men who have leprosy or leprous men. And I mean, you could say this is splitting hairs. Well, it's just saying 10 lepers. And that Andres is just another way of saying it's, it's 10, 10 people who have it, 10 lepers. But the thing is, does the leprosy define them? And that's what I'm trying to emphasize with this is. When you look at it, yes, in, in the eyes of society, it does define them. Those are now people that are not normal people anymore. Those are lepers. That's how the world sees them. But then you remember God's words to Samuel when he's anointing David. He says, do, you know, do not look upon his appearance for man does not see as God sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks onto the heart. And what is with these men is they have been corrupted by this leprosy. This is not how God created them to be. This is a corruption of their nature, a corruption of their flesh. I mean, that's literally what leprosy is. It eats away at the flesh and corrupts it. And what you see here is Jesus cleansing them of that which corrupts them. And that is what our sin is. God does not create sin. He creates man, and we are corrupted by sin. This is something that's really interesting in our Lutheran um, confessions concerning Article 1 on original sin from the formula of Concord. And the question is, does human nature equal sin? And the formula of Concord says, well, no, it does not, because that would mean then that God is the creator of sin. But also that Jesus Christ, who became true man, is by nature sinful, which he's not, because then he would not be able to be the all-atoning sacrifice. Man has been corrupted by sin to the point where now you don't see a difference between man's nature and sin. You just see the sin. But God sees his creation still, and that's why he sent his son to free us from that corruption, that deep-seated corruption. But why I emphasize it in our Lutheran circles is we have our confession. You know, we say, I am by nature sinful and unclean. And uh, what is that? Divine service one and two, I believe. We have that confession. Right. So the thing is, if you are sin, 
then what's being rescued? Sin does not go unto eternity. You go unto eternity. You have been rescued, freed from sin. You are set free from that sin. That sin is put to death and dies that the new man, who you are in Christ, may live in righteousness and purity forever. So God does not define you by your sin. God defines you by his son. The world will define you by your sin like we do Thomas as the doubter or Peter as the denier or David as the adulterer. But in heaven, that's not David's name. That's not Thomas's name or Peter's name. They are St. Thomas, St. Peter, St. David. You are a saint because of Christ. So the leprosy is not who you really are. Who you really are is who Christ has created you and declared you, reckoned you to be in his righteousness. And you are freed from that sin. So let me let me try to draw out a, a little bit more of this because I think this is is important what you're what you're saying here that these when when Jesus looks at these men then he doesn't just see ten lepers who who bear that label and all of the shame and disgrace that that label entails he sees rather ten men who have been corrupted by leprosy and in compassion for these ten men. He then wants, he desires, and they're, they're going to pray. We'll talk about that in a second. But, but he, in seeing these 10 men corrupted by something that doesn't belong to their humanity, he has this desire to cleanse them from that which corrupts. And again, in view of where he's going, what he's ultimately come to do is to cleanse men, to free men from what corrupts them ultimately, which is their sin. That's what's going to happen on the cross. And so as a foreshadow of that, here, when he sees these 10 men corrupted by leprosy, he cleanses that leprosy. And really, then what he's doing is he's, he's restoring them to full humanity. What their humanity should have been, it had been corrupted. Now he's giving it back to them, and he's going to do that fully on the cross. Is that, is that following along with what you're saying? You just said it in a much clearer way than I could, Brother Apple. And that, but that's exactly it, yes. All right. So it's beautiful stuff. But like I said, if you ask the, the average Lutheran or even a pastor, um, not that like a pastor isn't an average Lutheran, does human nature equal sin? They would say yes, because that's what they're raised with in the confession. But that's not what our confessions teach. So I guess my other encouragement is to the listeners, read Article 1 of the Formula of Concord. Understand what our belief is and how this then allows you to experience deeper what it means to be forgiven by Christ. I'll, I'll allow that. We Normally we reserve the confessions for Concord Matters here on KFUO with host Pastor I Sean Smith, you. but we can oh, read I the formula you. occasionally, Well, my, my too. beard is bigger than his, so I'm allowed to do that. <laughs> so, it's all so, right. Sure. Take a, look, <clears throat> take a look at the formula of Concord, Article 1, and I know that Pastor Smith has an episode on that, perhaps more than one, from the archives on Concord Matters here on KFUO. Check that out and find out why. Find out more as to why this distinction is important, that Christ cleanses us from the corruption to our human nature, which is sin. In this case, we're talking about leprosy. Let, let's talk a little bit more about leprosy. You know, as 10 lepers, when, when you're a leper, Pastor Hall, what, like, what's the effect on a person? What is that? You know, there's, there's obviously a stigma here that we're talking about. What is that stigma attached to leprosy? Well, it's that you are unclean. You are even cursed by God, um, and that, that's what it is in that society, that if you have this, you have done something to merit God's wrath 
to cause your flesh to be uh, turning color, to be falling off. I remember I went to a leper colony in Madagascar when I was there a handful of years ago. And we had to get, take a, a van up there and drive a few hours up on this mountain. And they had the, the Lutheran church there had started a leper colony. So anyone who had leprosy would go there to be treated and their families would move there with them. So they were literally outside of society, up on this mountain, away from everybody. And you see this, not only is leprosy seen as like, you are cursed by God unclean, you are also an outcast now. You're outside of something, you're outside of society. And we see that later in this text with Jesus telling them, go show yourself to the priest. Um, but you are outside of it. And that even further in the context of Jesus going to the cross, sin makes us outside of God's, you know, outside of his, his favor. And that's why we must be saved by grace alone. We can't merit God's favor. It must be given to us based on the merit of Christ. So even this leprosy, these leprous men is preaching to us that all of us are outside of God's favor and must be restored to it by Christ alone. Even the thought of being an outcast and how lepers often would be outside of you know normal society, I think that recalls, and I can't remember if you've talked a little bit about this already, the great exchange that Jesus makes, but I think it's, is it Hebrews that emphasizes the fact that Jesus, when he was crucified, was crucified outside the city. You know, he, he makes this right. great exchange with us. Well, exactly. And that's the reality. He, he becomes the rejected outcast that we may be the accepted child. And that's what he does for us. And that's what you see with these healings. He takes the leprosy doesn't just disappear. Christ assumes the corruption. I mean, that's what he does. He's assuming the corruption. He's assuming the death, assuming the blindness and the deafness and the mute. He's assuming the cripple. He's assuming the adultery and the lust and the envy. He assumes all this as his own because what he does not assume, he does not redeem. So he assumes all this and makes them his own so that we may have what is his cleansing and wholeness. And it's beautiful. Beautiful gospel indeed from this text in Luke 17. We're going to pick up more of it on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke 17 with Pastor Chris Hull this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, March 17th. We are studying Luke 17, verses 11 to 19 with Pastor Chris Hull. He serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. 
Pastor Holt, prior to the break, we were talking about these 10 leprous men corrupted by the sickness of leprosy. Jesus is going to cleanse them. He does so in response to their prayer in this text. They're standing at a distance, being lepers. They are not to go close to those who are clean. (laughs) And they lift up their voices, and Luke records the prayer for us. They say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. This is a very familiar prayer to us as Christians. Tell us a little bit about it. Have mercy on us. Right, you have that eleison, that Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, right? The, the Greek and the Latin, we, we pray. And we pray the Kyrie every Sunday in the divine service. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. I remember Robert Preuss said this is the second great prayer the Christian prays after the Lord's Prayer. Because that mercy, and what is mercy, is the act of God saving you from what you rightly have earned. We have earned death and eternal condemnation because of our sins, and yet we are rescued from it, not by reason of our merit, but by grace alone, that unmerited favor that Christ gained for us on the cross. So these leprous men, these men corrupted by leprosy are saying, rescue me, save me from this, save me from the the corruption of my flesh, save me from being an outcast in society, save me from this life. Rescue me, Lord, from this. And isn't that a prayer we all pray? Certainly. And the thing about, you know, have mercy upon us, sometimes in the in the context of the divine service, it, it seems that we're only asking for the Lord's forgiveness. And we are asking for forgiveness when we pray for mercy. As we've been saying all along, all of this is connected to what Christ is going to do on his cross when it comes to cleansing the corruption of our sin. At the same time, I think it's important for us to recognize that the prayer, have mercy upon us, is an all-encompassing prayer. It's it's not only asking for the forgiveness of sins, but it's asking for all of those good things that God would give us, none of which we deserve, but he gives to us by his grace because he loves us. And this, you know, it's this prayer, have mercy upon us, is just a, a such a broad prayer. And, and as you said, I mean, the one that we can make use of as Christians in any number of circumstances, there's so many situations that we face where the prayer to pray is, Lord, have mercy on me. Right. And and that's the thing is, like you mentioned, when you pray for mercy, it's not just what well, it is. It is forgiveness, but it is also those first article gifts, everything given to you in this life. Luther says, if, if God were to withdraw his mercy, but for a moment, we will be overcome by the devil. Mm. And this reality, we need the mercy of God. On a daily basis, you shouldn't wait till once a week to pray the, the Kyrie. You should be praying it every morning, noon, and night, the Kyrie. Um, this is why, like, when um, after the Rona shutdowns and everything, you know, a lot of, like, we took our hymnals out of the church and did full print bulletins because we didn't know how it was transferred and stuff, you know. And I think when I cleaned one bu- a hymnal, even someone had, like, sneezed in the middle of it. And there were two hymns stuck together. It was delightful. Um, but when we when we were getting a lot of, you know, backlash, we want the hymnals back in the pews. We want the hymnals back in the pews. And I said, I want the hymnals in your home. I would love it if there were no hymnals in the pews because you all bring your hymnals from home that you have spent the entire week going through the prayer offices, singing the hymns you sang on Sunday morning, praying the Psalms, and doing all these things. So that hymnal is your daily devotional book. It's not just something you use for 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. Hmm. 
It's something that is a part of you. So the Kyrie is our daily bread. It's not just something you do to get from the intro, or the, the, yeah, the intro to the glory in excelsis or during Lent to the collect. That's right. That's right. Yeah, no, but that's that's excellent for Christians to to consider the hymnal as part of their, you know, daily devotions. What a wonderful gift. And to make then this prayer, the Kyrie, Lord have mercy upon me, a part of that daily bread, that constant uttering to God our needs, have mercy. Anytime a, a need comes about, this is the Christian prayer, Lord have mercy upon me. That's what the lepers speak to Jesus. Jesus sees them. And he speaks in response, go and show yourselves to the priest. Why Why this instruction from Jesus? Well, so they can be restored, right? He doesn't even say, be ye healed, like he does with other ones, right? The, the um, uh, what is it, the uh, the man who recovers his sight, right? Not not recovers his sight, what was it? When Jesus says, I will be clean. Right, That was there was a, another leper previously whom Jesus yeah. met. So he, you had the leper there, yeah. And he doesn't say that here. He doesn't say, I will be cleansed. He just says, go show yourself to the priest. And and they go, and it's right, it's on the journey to the priest. They then see it. It happens. They're cleansed. And showing yourself to the priest is just a further example that now they can be brought back into society. Now they can be publicly shown as cleansed. It's not just some facade. Uh, Jesus didn't put makeup on the leprosy. It's gone. And they can be restored. Um, they can be in their relationships again. They can be a part of society again. But the Samaritan can't. Hmm. So is right? it, Well, that's right. Before we get to the Samaritan, just one thing, as you, as you were reading again and reminding us what happens, you know, Jesus says, go, show yourselves to the priests. And then it is as they went, they were cleansed. We have this journey language show back up again. And now in the context of those who are being cleansed, is there right. is there a connection there between the journey of Jesus and now the journey of these lepers? Oh, yes. Well, and that's the thing, like I mentioned earlier in our conversation, the, the pilgrimage of Jesus and our pilgrimage. Mm. As we go, we are cleansed. As we go, we are recipients of Christ's mercy. But do we always return to Christ in thanksgiving, that Eucharisto, um, or Eucharisto yeah, that you see with the Samaritan? Um, are we the only, do we always return to God in thanksgiving when the hip surgery goes successfully? When, yes, there is food on the table. I mean, how many of us Lutherans know? I mean, if, if you were to sit at a table with someone and they tell you, we're going to pray the common prayer, what, what do you assume they mean? They probably mean, come Lord Jesus, be yeah. our guest. Right. That's the common table prayer. And you're like, mm, no, it's not. Um, and you go to Luther's prayer and the catechism. But what does Luther have after you eat? Is a return of thanks to God. But what do we do after we eat? We cram our gullets quickly and then rush off to do something as if what we have just received is not gift from God, mm-hmm. that we return thanks to him. On our pilgrimage, we are always being healed and receiving his mercy on this pilgrimage unto eternity. And we, how often do we actually stop and return that thanks to God? Using the leper here as an example, that this is what our life is. 
Let, let's talk about the leper then, the Samaritan one who who is a, a leper, who's healed now, and the example that he sets. There's quite a bit of detail as to what he does there in verse 15. He sees that he was healed. He turns back. He praises God. Into verse 16, he falls on his face, and then he gives Jesus thanks. This is this is quite the expression of, of gratitude from this mm-hmm. Samaritan upon seeing that he's healed. Well, it's amazing because— the other nine, I mean, the other nine are healed, but they don't have this type of thing go on. They they continue on. Well, at least we assume it. We don't know where they go, really, do we? Hmm. It doesn't say in the text. It doesn't say that they went and showed themselves to the priest. Jesus told them to. But we don't know where they went. Best construction, right? We keep the Eighth Commandment even on those in Scripture and assume they did as Jesus told them to do. Yeah, we don't know. They may have gone to their house. They may have gone to the local pub and shown everybody, hey, look, guys, I'm back. I can have the good wine now. We don't know what they did. The assumption is they went to the priest, but we know what the Samaritan did. He turned around and said, that's the one that did it for me. That's where it is now because he falls down and worships him. And as we learned from this past Sunday, it is God alone that we worship and him alone do we serve. So bowing down and worshiping at the feet is confession on who Jesus is. He is the one that by his word affects creation because he is the word by which all things were made. Well, let's talk a little bit about what this guy realizes, because I I think, you know, this is the, we were talking about this before we recorded, that this text shows up on Thanksgiving. If you you have a Thanksgiving Eve or a Thanksgiving day service at your church, there's a good chance that you will hear this text from Luke 17. And I think sometimes the the temptation is to look at this text and and only see the one leper as the example of being thankful. And so the the message maybe we get from this is you should be like the leper. Make sure you give thanks, you know, before you eat a bunch of food on Thanksgiving, right? That right. I think that's kind of just the surface. And that's maybe that's all we get. But there's there's really a lot more here. I, I think that you know one thing is is what you mentioned. And, and again, we don't know what these other nine did. But I think it's it's easy, at least for me, to imagine that these nine, like they weren't completely ungrateful. I I, I would no. imagine, you know, they they were healed and they're jumping up and down for joy. Probably, and it's again, it's like this is maybe best construction. It's it's a bit of conjecture, to be fair. But I, I don't have a hard time imagining them being thankful, saying thank you, God. But, right. But this one offers that thanks to God in a completely different way, and that I think is is really the key to this text. It's not just, hey, make sure you give thanks before you stuff your face on Thanksgiving, but it's really recognize that Jesus is the one to whom thanks is due. He is God who is here, and again, not just to cleanse you from leprosy, but to cleanse you from the corruption of sin. This is a lot more about who Jesus is, first and foremost, before it sets that example of Thanksgiving to us. Exactly. And that, that's why you have it on this day. That's why you also have it in the season of Trinity as one of our readings. This isn't just about being thankful for some of the stuff you have. It's that. But it's who is Jesus and what has he done and continues to do for you? It's preaching to you who Jesus is, is God incarnate. And our, and our response by faith is just thanksgiving. Let's talk a little bit more again about Jesus' instruction and how this man does it. You know, so Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priests. And, you know, perhaps best construction, the other nine, they do that. They go <laughs> show themselves to the priests. 
This mm-hmm. one guy doesn't actually do that. He doesn't go and show himself to the priest like Jesus says. And I mean, I've, I've thought about this before, and then it kind of it dawns on me, and this is, I'd, I'd like to hear what you think about this. Or did he? Did this one actually go and show himself to the the true priest, the one who had come to mm, fulfill right. what the what the priests in the Old Testament were there doing? Maybe that, and I don't know, I, I don't want to read too much. I, I don't think I'm reading this into the text, but I like your thoughts. I mean, is that part of what we can take from this text is that Jesus is actually the priest who's come to, you know, make the sacrifice for sins? Well, that's the point here. It's that everyone says, well, he doesn't go because he can't go. Well, and then that's true. He can't. The the Jews hate Samaritans. Uh, they're not going to welcome him in and say, yes, you're, you're a good guy now. But the reality is that's not where you're supposed to go anyways. There's a new location. There's a great high priest here after the order of Melchizedek, who now makes this atoning sacrifice. And that is where you go to give thanks. That is where you go because he is the one who is healed. And that's what the Samaritan is doing. He falls down because how does Jesus end it? He doesn't say your, your faith has made you well. He says your faith has saved you. you. You've returned to the one who does all things well. You have returned to the one who does make the one sacrifice that matters. Right, and again, there's there's that connection to the fact that Jesus is journeying at this point. He's on his way to Jerusalem. What's he going to do there? He's going to offer the once and all final sacrifice for our sin as our great high priest. And it seems that this Samaritan man who had been a leper recognizes that. And so instead of going to the temple, he returns to the temple, the new place where God dwells in the flesh, he goes to Jesus Christ. And and here, this is another thing I want to talk about a little bit, Pastor Hall, is, is his posture. He falls on his face mm. at Jesus' feet. And we, you know, we, we have different postures for worship in, in our churches still today. What's the significance of this posture that this man takes? I mean, th- this, is, this is complete worship and adoration. But it's also expressing who Jesus is. You look at the Old Testament, Joshua following down, falling down at his face. Every time you fall down at your face, it's because it's the presence of God. So falling down on his face at Jesus's feet is that great confession that Jesus isn't just some guy. This is this is God here that is with me. So you don't bow down to anyone else. You don't prostrate and genuflect to anyone else, but only to God alone. And that's the beauty of this text with that, that this man, this Samaritan does that. This foreigner, one who is outside, is now <laughs> the one who confesses truly who Jesus is. And you see that just in his manner of worship. And it's probably worth noting, just in, in passing, or, or if you can dwell on this a little bit if you'd like, but this is an example where we do see Jesus proclaimed by the Scriptures as truly God. When this Samaritan man falls down at his feet, worshiping him, praising God, Jesus does not reject this man's worship. He doesn't say, mm. don't do that. I'm, that doesn't no. belong to me. No, he, he does receive <laughs> the worship as God. And that's, again, just for when, when someone will, will say, well, the Bible— Jesus never said he was God. Well, maybe you need to read it a little more closely. This is another, yeah. a good place to look at. Well, he, he did. 
constantly by saying I am right. like, as we read in John, but even more so it's how people treat you, how they present you, what they say about you. He does not tell them stand up, man. You know, I, I'm not God. I'm merely his messenger. Jesus doesn't say that <laughs> he, he blesses him. And he says, your faith is right. Is what he says. Your faith is, is proper. Like if you read uh, your treasury, uh, this morning, we one of the readings was from the first commandment, the large catechism, where Luther says, where your trust and faith is right, there, there is the true God. And when we look at this Samaritan, his faith is right because his faith is not in just something, some abstract God, but in the one true God incarnate right in front of him. Let's talk a little bit more about the posture again with the man falling on his face, that being a posture and a recognition of who Jesus is. How how do our postures in worship also communicate that reality of who Jesus is? Well, it's it's how we enter the sanctuary, how we how we hold ourselves, how we hold our hands, how we and, and I know it's all, you know, people can say, well, that's Adiaphora. It doesn't, it's neither commanded nor condemned in scripture. You can kind of do what you want. Well, yeah, you can wear whatever you want in church. You can hold your hands however you want. But <laughs> there is a certain way you, you present yourself. How you bow your head at the name of Christ. How when you're receiving the blessing, you you bow your head. When you pray, you you bow your head and close your eyes. We teach children to do these things, to hold their hands a certain way. Um, even blessing yourself with the sign of the cross. How we even genuflect, how we kneel when we stand. Our posture preaches when words aren't doing it even. And I tell people that's where children really learn what worship is, is how you conduct yourself in worship. And they learn, well, something special is going on here. It's not like just waiting in line at, at the H-E-B. And if, if anyone doesn't know what H-E-B is, you don't live in Texas. Therefore, you're not blessed with the best grocery store ever. <laughs> but it's not like waiting in line there. It's different. Even how you approach the altar, you approach it with a humble joy. You are you are humbled at the presence of God, heaven on earth. And you act like heaven's on earth because it is. And that's how we hold ourselves, bowing and kneeling and standing and praying. Sure. And, and I mean, you know, I think there's there's also, it's it's quite something to see with this leper, how you get certainly the, the reverent posture, the, hum, the posture of humility and falling on his face. And yet in the, the action of him turning back, praising God with a loud voice, at the same time, there's this joy that just overflows from the gift that he's received. I had a—when uh, I was on, on Vicarage in Garden City, Kansas, there was a, a dear saint there who, who once told me, Pastor, when I, when I come back from communion—or I was vicar at the time, I suppose. Vicar, when I, when yeah. I come back from communion, they, up there in Garden City, they had, to, they had to actually walk up a few steps to where the altar rail was, and then you walk down back to, to where you mm -hmm. sat— and and she said, Pastor or Vicar, when I when I come back from communion, I always want to kind of jump off and and click my yeah, heels uh, together because I'm so joyous about it. I don't know that that she ever did, but I I could understand that because it, you know oh, I mean yeah. you, you see, and I think that's that's the beauty of this leper is you get both of those reactions 
in a in a visible way, both the humility and the great joy at the same time. Oh, exactly. And that's when I say like this humble joy, there's you don't have to just because you're bowing or praying or genuflecting, you don't have to look like you just finished watching old yeller. <laughs> I've you seen know? that one too. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to have this look on your face like you just lost the lottery. Mm. You know, it, it's a reality that you you are in the presence of God. You're before all the saints of heaven. Why wouldn't you have a smile on your face? Why wouldn't you be joyful? And it makes sense to to click your heels and dance and sing. Um, I shock people when I say I'm not opposed to liturgical dancing. I'm just opposed to what we do as liturgical dancing nowadays. Because it's not liturgical dancing. Um, the, the reality is, yes, you, you dance with joy because you've been forgiven. You've been welcomed under the, the eternal dwellings. How is that not a joyful thing? Yeah. And let children see that, that you are actually more excited to be at church than anywhere else during the week. It shouldn't be that the only time your children see a smile on your face is when you're watching the Astros or, or when you're, you're at the liquor store or, or you know, whatever your hobby is, is when they see a smile on your face. They see the smile when you're on the way to church, at church, and on the way home from it. That's when your, your children go, hey, there's nowhere else they'd want to be. I, I, I actually yelled at a member one time. Um, I probably shouldn't yell at them, but it just makes sense. When I, I said, you know, because we have a, a confession and absolution service on Saturdays, and, uh, and this individual said, you know, Saturday's kind of my family time. And I said, good, then come to confession and absolution. Why wouldn't you? You know, well, what, is, what, what do you mean family time? I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard that I wouldn't be in church is the most joyful place to be with my family. You know, well, what else are you going to do? That is a greater joy than that. Mm -hmm. And that's really the, the challenge I guess we face is you, you can't create that joy in somebody. Only faith receives that mm -hmm. and experiences it. You know, I think the, the talk of the great joy that is ours to receive this gift from Jesus it makes me hear his words to the Samaritan in a slightly different way, rather than as only accusatory, you know, where are the other nine? Why is it just this foreigner? Not just an accusatory tone from Jesus, but maybe even a, a I don't know if regretful is the right word, that he's, you know, look at, look at the joy that these other nine are missing out on because they right. received the healing, but they didn't, they didn't return in faith. And that, that great joy, they're missing it. And so it's not just an accusatory, here's the law telling you what you should have done. There is that, but there's also that you know, mournful nature of it. Look at, look at what you're missing by not coming to Jesus. What, you know, look at what you could have had. And I think that's the attitude for, for us as Christians. You know, look at what's here. Come receive it. Right. Well, it's like you hear, you hear the thing of, you know, couldn't you just go through your whole life and then repent on your deathbed? Yeah, but look at what you'd be missing out on. There's, a, there's an episode in The Hammer of God on this mm. um, by, you know, Bo Geertz. And it's when um, he's talking to this one guy who is a believer and he's lamenting because he's like, oh, my brother is a drunk and he does all these things and he gets to have fun while I really am a Christian and struggle. And the pastor goes, well, mourn for him that he has not been brought into this joy that you get to experience. 
you're not jealous of the world, you mourn for the world. Isn't that what it says in the Beatitude? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Comforted in the assurance of Christ, we mourn for the world uh, because they don't get to experience the same joy we have. We're not holy rollers. We're ones who know the joy of Christ. <laughs> and what greater thing is that than the freedom given to us in Christ? Pastor Hull, we got about three minutes here on the morning as we wrap things up. Take us, Give us that last verse, because that is such wonderful gospel from Jesus. Rise and go your way. And as you said, your faith not just has made you well, but your faith has saved you. Give us the, the good news from those last words of Jesus in this text. Is that your faith stands and saves you. This reality that it doesn't just one time save you, but it is the constant saving. Faith has the perpetual effect and benefit of saving you because faith, as we sing in our hymn, clings to Jesus' cross alone. It rests in him unceasing. Faith clings to Christ. Faith holds on to Christ. Faith returns to Christ. Faith always wants to be with Christ. Faith saves us from sin, death, world, and the power of the devil. It saves us from ourselves. It, it saves us from despair. It saves us from a life of misery, a life of chasing, a life of, of regret, a life of always wanting something more. No, we've been given everything in Christ. And faith, therefore, completes. It is not a half work. It is the full thing. It is the full gift of God that rests in the completion of knowing who we are in Christ, not sinful, not corrupted, not ugly and rejected and outcast, but one who is of Christ, one who is defined and reckoned righteous because Christ has taken all that casts us out, that it may be no more and we may be welcomed home to the heavenly dwellings by our Father who welcomes us with arms open wide, because Christ stretched his arms open wide for us on the cross. Thanks be to God for that. Pastor Chris Hull is pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas, helping us today with Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. Pastor Hull, thanks for being our guest today. Brother Apple, always fun times with you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke 17 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.